Today we meet with Dr. Joseph Friedberg, a thoracic surgeon at Temple University Hospital and Fox Chase Cancer Center. Interviewed by Shannon Sinclair, the Patient Services Director at the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, Dr. Friedberg discusses a variety of topics relating to mesothelioma surgery. The conversation begins with a look at the anatomy of mesothelioma and expands to include a discussion about criteria for determining if someone is a surgical candidate. MesoTV is a video program adapted to audio only for this podcast, produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. The Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, a national 501c3 nonprofit organization, provides patient support and education services, funds peer-reviewed research, and advocates for increased funding of mesothelioma research. This season of programming is made possible with the support of our generous sponsors. They are MRHFM, Bellican Fox, Bristol Myers Squibb, NovoCure, Merck, The Gory Law Firm, TCR Square, AstraZeneca, Early Lucarelli Sweeney, and Meisenkothen. Visit CureMiso.org to learn more. Hi, everybody. Thank you for being on this episode of Miso TV with me today. Today we have Dr. Joseph Freeberg, and I am going to have him introduce himself and tell us where he's from. Hi, everyone. So uh, I'm here in Philadelphia. I work at Temple and Fox Chase. I've, I've been around, though. So uh, I trained up in Boston uh, at, at Harvard, and which is where I got interested in mesothelioma, working with Dr. Sugar Baker, and then came to Pennsylvania after my fellowship and long time ago now, 1996, I started University of Pennsylvania. I was there more or less for almost 20 years, went to University of Maryland for five or six years and uh, missed my kids too much. <laughs> and, and also just a tremendous opportunity to do some exciting work here in Philadelphia, especially with, uh, with some of the oncologists and researchers at Fox Chase. And so I came back to Philadelphia and been here about a year. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So um, that leads us into my next um, question is tell us a little bit about the program that you are co-directing at Fox Chase. Sure. So it's uh, so my my position. The title is uh, thoracic surgeon in chief for the Temple Health System. And so that includes Temple University Hospital. Uh, uh, Fox Chase Cancer Center, and then actually there's a hospital physically attached to Fox Chase uh, called Jeans Hospital. So, um, and then there's a couple other places, but we don't operate in those. And so, you know, we see patients at both Temple and Fox Chase, but we have our mesothelioma program, which I co-direct with Melissa Culligan, with whom I've been working for, oh my God, 25 years, God bless her. And, um, and so we've actually started a number of mesothelioma programs. We started the Penn Mesothelioma Program with Dan Sturman many years ago. It may have actually been the very first kind of fully comprehensive mesothelioma program, I'm not sure. And then we went to University of Maryland where we started another one and now we're starting this one and we're just kind of takes a while to kind of settle in, but we're really actually just getting close to having our formal launch. And we will, um, we should be doing that in the very, very near future, but we have been meeting already. So the program is, is us, obviously, there's other thoracic surgeons who, who are involved and attend. We have the medical oncologists, and I must say, this is just one of the most astounding collections of medical oncologists with whom we've worked, but uh, Marty Edelman, Haas guy, Jessica Bauman, I mean, it's, it's a G 
Joe Treat. It's a really terrific, and a lot of them have a lot of mesothelioma experience, which has been great. In fact, Dr. Edelman, who's the chief of medical oncology at Fox Chase, was actually at Maryland. And one of the reasons I wanted to come back, he headed our medical oncology for a mesothelioma program there when, when they had it. Um, then we have our radiation oncologists. We have we have our thoracic oncology nursing, which Melissa Culligan leads. She actually, I think, was one of the first presidents of the uh, International Thoracic Oncology Nursing Foundation, which she just told me yesterday, I think, has grown from something like the 12 people who started it to seven or 800 people now, which is wow. pretty spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a big, it, it really brings a lot. We have a lot of international connections through that, which I found very not just educational, but good for the patients. We've learned quite a bit through her connections. Uh, we have nutritionists, we have cancer psychology, psychiatry, we have, we have palliative care, uh, physical therapists, and, uh, and then pulmonologists. And that's one of the great things about this position. We not only have, and I've worked a, a fair bit with some really accomplished pulmonologists in the in my cancer practice, but they've always been very much focused on interventional pulmonary medicine. We have our thoracic oncology program here actually combines the Temple Lung Center, which has just a group of world-class pulmonologists. We have the largest lung transplant program in the country. And wow. so the yeah, the so we have just a degree of kind of general pulmonary knowledge, lung, lung sort of health and uh, interpretation on scans that I, I've never really appreciated. It's just been amazing for our patients to have someone look at a scan and say, geez, you know, you should be thinking about this, this, and this, which when you're focused on cancer, doesn't really come up as much, but really has been incredibly useful. And that kind of, I didn't anticipate that, but uh, it's really been a tremendous boon for our practice and for our patients. Yeah, that's really exciting. Very exciting really to have all of that at one place. I mean, that's it's great. That's great for patients um, as well yeah. as as for the doctors to have everybody to bounce that off of. Well, it's it it's the only good thing about the pandemic. <laughs> when, I, when I was at when I was at Maryland for a number of years, I was trying to get a telemedicine program started and just kind of ran into a thousand points of no. There was this, and then all of a sudden the pandemic hit. So we have our our tumor boards now are are virtual for the most part, and for instance, where we're presenting our mesothelioma patients now, we'll have as many as sixty to eighty people on. Wow! So yeah, it's That's a lot. That's exciting. Of, yeah, and it just you know, so you have a medical oncologist who has kids; she has to get off to school, but she can she can join in, and it's just been incredible the attendance on this. And uh, I have no doubt, and we've had our We've had um, oncologists and pulmonologists present their patients at our tumor board, and that that was nearly impossible before. So that's really been terrific. Yeah, that's wonderful. So let's start with: um, Can you describe for us, for a patient's point of view, what is pleural mesothelioma? Sure. So, well, in the most literal terms, pleural mesothelioma is is a cancer of the pleura that affects the mesothelial cells. What does that mean? It sounds like a lot of gobbledygook. Um, the pleura is the lining of the chest cavity. And so the lining is formed by cells called mesothelial cells. 
Mesothelial cells line several cavities in the body. They line the chest cavity, they line the pericardial cavity, which um, the two lungs sit inside the chest and then separating, and they're in separate spaces. And you know, a lot of mesothelioma patients, will, the presenting symptom will be they develop fluid in the chest cavity, it compresses the lung and they get short of breath. But the reason it doesn't fall into the other side or go into the other side is that, in, at least in humans, the two chest cavities are separate. And separating them is a region we call the mediastinum. And the biggest thing there, obviously, is the heart. But the heart isn't just flopping around in there. It's actually contained in this leathery sac called the pericardium. The pericardium is lined with mesothelium. Then the lining of the abdominal cavity called the peritoneum, that's got mesothelial cells. And then actually um, the tunica vaginalis, basically there's an area in the testes in men that has mesothelial cells. The mesothelium, just like any cell in the body, uh, you know, lung cancer, you can have squamous cell cancer, so that's like the skin elements in the lung, those kind of cells, they can develop a cancer. Adenocarcinomas, people hear that term, that's a cancer that develops in the glandular elements of different organs, including the lung or salivary glands, wherever the colon, but mesothelioma is a cancer of the mesothelial cells and it's a very rare cancer. So that can start in the lining of the chest cavity, which is the most common since it's usually caused by asbestos and you inhale the asbestos more often than not. It can occur in the lining of the abdomen, it can occur around the heart and it can occur in the testes. So those are sort of the four places where there are mesothelial cells and those are the four places where you can get a mesothelioma. And when you're looking at pleural mesothelioma, because I get this question a lot, does it does it look different than lung cancer? Is there something that um, sparks you to know that there's a difference there? Oh, it's a huge difference. So lung cancer, um, I'll draw a picture for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's see. Um, you know, my mom was an artist and, you know, I can barely draw a lung, but I'll, I'll do the best I can here. <laughs> we appreciate your, yeah. your artistic abilities. No, you, well, you, you're speaking a little early, but let's see how it goes. <laughs> I don't know if this will turn up on zoom here but can you see that yeah very well actually okay actually let me turn it down a little bit. so you're so this is this is like if you open my open me up like a book this is what you would see so your windpipe it comes down the middle and it splits into the right and the left sides and so you have the the left lung here the right lung there this is the diaphragm which is your breathing muscle and that separates the, the belly from the chest. These are the ribs. And then this is what I was talking about. So the left lung sits in this cavity and that is separate from the right side. And separating those two is you got the heart in the middle. So you have, let's see if this is still in view here. So you have the, um, you have the heart in the middle, 
And this is that sac is telling you the pericardium. This is the diaphragm here. And so lining each of these cavities is this membrane, the, the pleura, and that's, that starts here kind of at the root of the lung. Actually, let me back up. The other things in the mediastinum separating these two sides, you have your esophagus, which is your swallowing tube, which goes down to the stomach. You have the spine. You have the, the nerves that work the diaphragm, your breathing muscle. They run on either side of the pericardium. That's that sac around the heart right here. You have all the major blood vessels going in and out of the heart. All those things are in the mediastinum and separating the two sides. This membrane, it starts here at the root of the lung and it goes along the mediastinum coating all of those surfaces. Then it goes along the diaphragm, your breathing muscle. Then it comes up along the ribs, along the chest wall here to the top of the chest cavity. Then it comes down along the main windpipe, the trachea, and the top of the mediastinum here. And then what it does is it folds back on itself to coat the entire surface of the lung, right? And the reason it does that is embryologically, the lung starts here and then it buds out. And when it goes out, it's like pushing your finger through a balloon it takes that membrane with it. So the pleura okay. folds back on itself when the lung pushes out into the chest cavity. So that, that membrane, it comes down, the right lung is the larger of the two lungs and each lung is comprised of smaller units called lobes. And so it goes between the upper and the middle lobe and then it coats the surface. It goes between the middle and the lower lobe. And then it comes down, it coats the bottom part of the lung. And then it comes up here and folds back on itself one last time to complete the circuit. That is the pleural lining that has the mesothelial cells and that's where that cancer starts. So that's what mesothelioma is, is a cancer of this lining. And so it's the hardest thing for not just patients, but almost anyone to kind of wrap their head around. When we think about a cancer, we typically think of something, you know, Solid. Yeah, you think of some solid. So the left lung kind of has two lobes. So if you have a lung cancer here, that's what it'll look like. You'll see a nodule sitting in the lung like that. And mesothelioma, it's like somebody just poured the cancer in there. And so there isn't all those structures I mentioned, there isn't a square inch in this chest cavity that's not involved with this cancer. Everything there is cancer. And so that has, there's a number of implications related to that. Um, so the short answer to your question, Shannon, is yeah, there's a big difference. When you look at a, an X-ray or a CAT scan, basically if it's a lung cancer, you'll see a nodule for the most part. So it's like a, a grape sitting in the middle of a jello mold. This, is totally different. It's like somebody poured cement in there and it just forms a cast of the entire chest cavity. So it's all these structures. So it looks, so what you'll see is it'll look thick. That pleura is normally, you know, it's, it's that thick, you know, it's like a sheet of paper, normal pleura you can see through. Oh, wow. It's, it's that thin. This can get, I mean, I operate on a patient 
last week, you know, the, the cancer was, my God, it must have been close to three inches thick down here. Um, so it looks totally different. The hard thing to conceptualize about this cancer is the fact that it lines all this. It's a, it's a different it's a different thing to treat. So this cancer, if you have a lung cancer up here, if that hasn't spread anywhere, if it hasn't spread to the lymph nodes and it hasn't spread through the bloodstream, whether it's me or, or anyone, you know, any, any thoracic surgeon, if we go in there and we take out that lobe of the lung, you can take that out. So you got the cancers in the middle of this thing and you can take it out and it's surrounded by normal tissue, if it hasn't spread, you can cure someone with surgery. And that's a totally different situation than this. The term that we use in surgery, cancer surgery is an, we say an R0 or an R1 or an R2 resection. R0 meaning it's a microscopically complete resection such that if you take that out, there's no cells anywhere. Now they may have spread already. There's nothing you can do about that, which is why you know surgery doesn't always cure. But we treat cancers by stage, and an early stage lung cancer is all things being equal going to be best treated with surgery. You take that out, you can cure someone by taking it out. This is a totally different thing. The best you can do here is what we would call an R1 resection, meaning that you remove all the cancer that you can see or feel. So a macroscopic, not microscopic, macro, something you can see or feel, a macroscopic complete resection, understanding that there's still gonna be invisible or microscopic disease, Still, there's gonna be cells there, there just is. And the analogy I'll sometimes use with the patients is I'll tell them, this one's more like if we, if we said, you know, okay, you know, we're gonna spend a day scraping the paint off the walls in this room, and we do, and we come in and we look around and we feel the walls and they're smooth and we don't see anything. But if you go up there with a microscope and take a look, somewhere there's gonna be a paint. Flex of paint. And mm -hmm. it's the same thing here. So even the most aggressive and biggest operations, you're gonna have cells left behind. So it, the implications that, Surgery alone really has no role in the treatment of this cancer. And also, technically, surgery is still what we would say is investigational. It's not the standard of care treatment for mesothelioma. And it's because of this relationship of the cancer. You can't get, we can't do a, a total chestectomy, you know, to get a negative margin on this. You'd have to take out the heart, all the ribs, the diaphragm. I mean, you can't, it, 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 you know. At some point, it would become easier to swap heads. You know, you can't, there's, you can't, you can't completely remove the cancer. So Everything. it makes the role of surgery in this cancer much more challenging and, and to some degree controversial. With pleural mesothelioma, um, there are different cell types, and those also can dictate whether or not you are a surgical candidate or not. Can yeah. you describe those for us and tell us? What what makes you more of a surgical candidate? Sure, excellent. Let me let me just turn my light back on. They timed out. Oh. saving money here. <laughs> Ta-da! Okay. Um, there's basically there's basically three subtypes of mesothelioma. Just broadly, there's obvious there's a lot more, but 
There's the epithelioid subtype, which is about two thirds of them. And then there's the sarcomatoid subtype. Sometimes patients have heard the term sarcoma. They'll know someone had a sarcoma. That's a cancer of the connective tissue elements like bone cancers or typically, you know, sarcoma. But so, and they tend to look like these, they're spindle shaped. They're these elongated cells as opposed to kind of more round or, or cuboid. And then, so there's a sarcomatoid subtype, which is, is pretty rare by itself. I don't know, maybe 10%, something like that. And then we have cleverly called biphasic or mixed where you have elements of both. So you have you have the epithelioid subtype, you have the sarcomatoid subtype, and it can vary from primarily one type to primarily the other, but you have elements of both. And that's also, that's also uh, uh, important. I'll tell you something about that in a second. Um, the epithelioid subtype is the one that we will typically have the most impact with, with aggressive treatments that include surgery. The sarcomatoid subtype, uh, outside of some sort of clinical trial, there's probably no role for surgery. You know, we're not, we're not adding anything. I mean, what are you trying to accomplish with surgery? Well, obviously you wanna try and extend life. And then at least I think, and I think a number of us, I know Melissa shares this, but you know, for mesothelioma, because the chances of cure with pleural mesothelioma, perineal is a different story, but for pleural mesothelioma, the chances of cure are small. The chances of helping someone are actually, if they're the right person, are, are, are pretty high. But because of that, you, you really, you know, we kind of put quality of life on an equal footing with extension of life. That's really important, which is one of the reasons I've sort of gravitated to lung cancer, lung sparing surgery, saving the lung as opposed to taking it out. I think you have a, a better quality of life. Um, we don't really, with the surgery, add much in most series, at least with the conventional treatments that have been done in the past, adding surgery to just systemic therapy for the sarcomatoid and frankly, for most of the biphasic cancers. I think that's changing some with the new immunotherapies and so forth. But for the most part, certainly off protocol, I would say, and ideally all patients should be sort of on protocol if you can, um, you know, the epithelioid subtypes are the ones who are most likely to benefit from, from surgery. So if you have a biphasic patient that is more heavily epithelioid, does that make them a surgical candidate? Whoa. Um, <laughs> 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 um, in the hot seat. Now, the short answer is no, uh, because so, like I said, surgery is not. If there's different roles for surgery in the in the field of medicine, right? So if you if you come to the emergency room with appendicitis, it's a short conversation. You can have surgery. You can die of appendicitis. The it's the only treatment, that's your option. Um, if you come in with this, you have this lung cancer here and they do a whole workup and you're a safe candidate. You know, you just ran the Boston Marathon two weeks ago and you fell and you got the next ray and they found this thing and you get a PET scan and a brain scan, there's nothing anywhere else. And you say, I don't want surgery. We're all gonna look at you go, 
well, you don't have to, but what are you, nuts? We, we know that's the best treatment. This is totally different. This is a totally different situation. This is, you know, surgery is an unproven, frankly. Um, you're talking about, a, talking about an insanely rare cancer. It's one or 2% as common as breast cancer or lung cancer. A few thousand cases of which maybe, I don't know the number, 10, 20% go to surgery. So very few patients are having surgery. So you can find a, a you know, a breast cancer series of thousands of patients uh, you know, a huge series of mesothelioma is going to be 100 patients. You know, uh, 30, 30, is a re- 30 to 50 patients is a pretty respectable size series for, meso- for a surgical series of mesothelioma patients. So we don't have the confidence to say, you know, 28.2% of the time this is going to happen, whereas you can with a lot of other things. That's not the case here. So at the end of the day, you know, I'll spend a lot of time with the patients making sure they understand. I mean, my conversation's always the same. It's, you know, something terrible can happen. To be a candidate for surgery, first and foremost, it has to be safe. So we check the heart function, lung function, kidneys, liver, everything, make sure that it appears safe. Second, it has to make sense from a cancer perspective, which for the most part means it's confined to the one chest cavity, which it usually is, and all things being equal, that it would be the epithelioid subtype. And then the last thing is that I have to, you know, I have to be convinced here that the patient understands this is not standard of care. The standard of care is systemic therapy, either combination immunotherapy or combination chemotherapy. That's the standard care. Anything beyond that as an initial treatment, whether it includes surgery or radiation or anything, any of any of those non-approved therapies is considered investigational. That said, there's a subgroup of patients, and this really comes into more of the, especially with this, more of the art of medicine than the science at one point, is trying to find people who will potentially benefit from surgery. So what I'll tell them, you know, if if I'm ultimately having this conversation with them, I feel that they have they have this option if they want to do it. And I'll tell them, you know, here's the things that could happen with surgery. One is that something terrible could happen. You don't leave the hospital. That can happen with any big operation. Two is everything goes great. And a couple of months later, this cancer's back like we were never there. That that can happen with this, you know, 2022, we're still at the mercy of the biology of these diseases quite a bit, but we know it's extremely unlikely with that here, you know, it, it certainly can happen. And anyone who's done any number of these cases has, you know, sadly seen this, it's heartbreaking. Or the third thing is, if you fall into this select group where this super aggressive treatment makes sense, then yeah, frankly, the most likely thing is that we're going to extend your life beyond what you would anticipate with just the standard therapy, which I, at least I will always include in addition to the surgery and, and things that we do intraoperatively and so forth. So, um, you know, those are the things you need to do to be a candidate. It has to be safe. It has to make sense from a cancer perspective. At least for me, the patient needs to convince me that they understand, you know, that this is, this is, you know, extreme. And it's always, I mean, I've dedicated my career to this 
because these patients I find just so, you know, I'm motivated by courage. That's that's my dad back there. You know, and even when it was the Army Air Corps before it was, you know, even the Air Force. And, uh, um, you know, I, I've just always been motivated by courage. And this is such a courageous because the people who go into this, having heard that, I mean, can you imagine? Like, right. say, yeah, I want to do that. And it's, you know, I, I want to, you know, want to see my granddaughter graduate from high school. And that's a year and a half from now. You know, I, you know, I want to walk my my daughter down the aisle she's getting married in a year you know well yeah i mean frankly both those things are unlikely shy of doing something aggressive to try and intervene but you know it comes with risk and it comes with discomfort and you know the people who do that you know they get all of me because it's really you know they're it's a really courageous group that that's that elects to do that i probably scare off more patients than sign up you know that's just me you know i gotta put my head down at night that's the way i do it we all have our own you know approach to these patients but that's being very uh honest and realistic though yeah yeah i mean it is i mean it's uh you know everyone's very vulnerable you know there's no one there's no one you meet with this where it's not the worst thing that's ever happened to them right and and their family and their family so uh, you know, Steve McQueen, King of Cool, mm-hmm. you know, he died of mesothelioma. Oh, wow. And, I didn't know that. Yeah. He died of mesothelioma. And you know, I think he ended up down in Mexico getting apricot pit treatments. And, you know, I mean, you can see how it happens. I mean, any kind of, and you know, any, anything that's going to help people will want to, and, and given yes especially this day and age, everyone's on the internet. They see the numbers, they, you know, they read about it. And so, and I'm sure you hear this all the time, my God. So, um, you know, it's a very vulnerable thing. And it's personally, I think, you know, it's, it's really important to be honest. And and so they know what, so they know what they're getting into for, you know, for both of us. And it's a big operation. I mean, the one last week took me 14 hours. You know, it's, it's a whole thing. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a big undertaking, but for the right patient, epithelioid subtype, um, obviously healthy, smaller tumor volume. Like if, if it looks like this and it's not real thick, that's more likely to be favorable for whatever reason, women often do better than men. Uh, you know, whether or not the lymph nodes are involved is probably related to it, you know, whether it's invading into things. But like our staging system for mesothelioma really isn't that robust right now. You come in with this thing and I know if I measure the size of that, it's a lung cancer, I measure the size of it. We get a, we, you know, we biopsy the lymph nodes, we get a brain scan and a PET scan you know, we'll tell you that's a stage 1A, and this is the prognosis if you have surgery, and there's a pretty darn good chance that's what's going to happen. Um, you know, the mesothelioma, it's more of a wild card, and we don't have such a great, you know, for instance, the tumor volume is not part of the staging system. That's a big deal. This, the subtype of the disease, so you're, we're talking about sarcoma, purely sarcomatoid patients, at least with the 
conventional treatments that have been done, you know, rarely benefit from the addition of surgery to their treatment. Whereas an epithelioid patient, I mean, any patient I've had who's, you know, survived for, you know, a long time, you know, they, they've been epithelioid for the most part. They've been epithelioid. So that's not part of the staging system. Right. It will be ultimately. We're in the process of, you know, revising again. But, um, you know, right now it, it's not. So, like I said, the patient selection is really just so it's it's critical. It's challenging. And you have to. Boy, if ever there was a role for individualized treatments and approaches, it's it's this cancer for sure. Absolutely. So I, you know, I tried to get people to um, second opinions and referrals, which often leads to them traveling. Um, when someone travels for surgery, what, what does that look like? How long are they in the hospital? How long do they have to stay in town even after they maybe are discharged? Excellent question. Um, depending on what we do, uh, you know, they're, they're usually in the hospital about two weeks, I would say. And I would ask them to stick around for probably at least two weeks afterwards. Uh, we have this, you know, Hope's Lodge here. I think there's a number of them around. They're just wonderful. So, you know, the families will usually stay there, uh, come in and visit, and they can stay there for free. But that's, uh, yeah, I'll ask them to stick around for a while. And then afterwards, um now, this day and age, you know, we, well, I'll do a consultation by telemedicine. I mean, we just saw someone from Hong Kong. I didn't make them come out here, come out to the, to the waiting room in Philadelphia. So, um, but when they come here, you know, for surgery, then, I'll, you know, I'll want them around, figure about a month. Okay. Something and like that. Once they go home, um, what does follow up sort of look like after that? Um, you know, right. Do they normally follow up with you every so often, um, as well as somebody that's local, or how does that sort of look? Yeah, so if they come from a distance, we'll work with their local oncologist usually, um, and we'll invite them to our tumor board, like I was talking about. They can discuss what they were thinking with, you know, our guys, and uh, um, and they can sort of arrive at what's going to, you know, be done postoperatively. And I think that's really important. Obviously, I mean, this is definitely a team endeavor. So we try and loop in their local doctors. And often I'll have spoken with the primary care doctors. There's going to be this or that. You know, you you want everyone working together for the patient. So communication's key. Um, but then, yeah, I, I follow the patients forever. And so they may be seen by other people. Uh, and if they get, you know, when they get chemotherapy, I'll, I may fall in sync with their oncologist if they're getting scans at home. But my routine is I'll see them, I'll get a CAT scan every three months for the first two years. The third year, I'll usually transition to, you know, three times or every four months. Years four and five will go every six months. And then I have a couple of patients who've gone out to annual scans. I'm not that comfortable with it. So I'll, I'll tend to scan someone every six months after five years even. And that, that's my routine. Again, there's no standard. That, that guidelines aware. for that, right? right. Um, along with that surveillance, because I get this question a lot from um, patients and caregivers, are there markers that they should be watching, certain tumor markers that they should be watching for possible recurrence? 
I got to tell you, we have, yes, yeah, so there, there is mesothelin, um, which and I got to say, we haven't, it, it, we started when I was at Penn, we were following it and it just didn't, it just didn't prove as, as useful to us as I had hoped. I was really enthusiastic about it. So right now, I know Dr. Pass has made some discoveries, I think osteopont, but we, we have not been following those. Now, I, we're doing some studies with uh, circulating uh, DNA and that type of stuff. And we're trying to get some studies going with that. Right now, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that, but we, we haven't just, we haven't found it as robust as we don't have a PSA for mesothelia. So prostate specific right. antigen is like, that, that's just the ideal marker. You know, if, if it goes up a little bit, we know, you know, this start looking for cancer. This is bad. This isn't, you know, this, this rate of, in, that to my knowledge doesn't exist for mesothelioma yet, but there are some super smart guys like Harvey Pass working on that for sure. Yes. That's what I try to tell everybody is it's still in research but they're Agreed. but they're looking but they're looking for those. Yeah, I agree with you, Sharon. Um, when a person does have surgery, do you recommend um, that they do some physical therapy as part of their healing process? Do do you see a benefit in that? Absolutely. You know, I, I mean, part of the conversation is, you know, uh, I'm going to want them up walking, if not the day after surgery, within a, you know, uh, the day after that. I mean, the more they're up and about, the better. Their only restriction is no lifting for six weeks. And yeah, I want them. I mean, some patients do, you know, remarkably well. They don't need physical, you know, they go home, they do walking, you know, they start doing their gardening again. And pretty soon, you know. I'll be getting the kind of six, eight weeks, you know, when can I start golfing again questions, you know, <laughs> but if somebody needs it, I, I'm a huge believer in not just rehab, but prehab. I like them getting in shape before surgery. Mm -hmm. I think that aids in the recovery. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I want them being active and, you know, I tell them, you know, if you're a runner, that may not be happening or you'll be running slower, but if you're golfing, I want to hear that you're golfing again, you're fishing, you're, you know, whatever it is, you know, you're out working the garden, you know, I want a picture of you, you know, planting some, you know, trees or whatever. So, <laughs> it, you know, that the whole point of this is for them to get their life back. And so, yeah, if they need physical therapy, they absolutely should do it. There's no downside. One of the other big questions that I get as sort of a long-term um, complication that can be from surgery can you talk a little bit about um, like neuropathy and neuropathy pain after somebody has a large surgery like this? Yeah. Um, that's not specific to mesothelioma. That's any kind of big operation and you can get kind of in the broadest terms, we'll call it, you know, post-thoracotomy pain. So thoracotomy being the, um, the incision that's made where you, you know, open up the chest and you spread the ribs apart to do the work inside. There's just no way to do this type of operation without, you know, doing that. And, but a lot of cancer operations that we do in the chest, you know, involve that. And I got to say, it's pretty unusual every, you know, every now and then, I mean, I tell most patients, uh, I would expect you to be taking pain medicine for a month to a few months afterwards. Uh, 
I've been doing this a long time. I know I look so young, but uh, <laughs> no, I've been I'm doing this a long time, and I don't look so young. But uh, I've never had anyone get there's there's a lot of and and rightfully so a lot of discussion and concern about the opioid epidemic. I've never had anyone get addicted to narcotics after chest surgery. It just it has never happened. But what I have had happen is patients don't take their pain medicine and they end up not taking deep breaths and coughing and they end up back in the hospital with a pneumonia, uh, you know, that type of thing. So I tell most patients, you know, I would expect, you know, a month to a few months that you'll be taking pain medicine. Um, and it'll be kind of really kind of two, three months till you're really starting to feel back to being yourself. Um, and it'll be a year or more before a day goes by when it doesn't occur to you that you had an operation. But patients really, you know, they, they get back to it pretty good. And I would say probably 90% of patients fall into that, that timeline. Uh, I've had patients go home and take nothing. That's, you know, that's rare, but happens. It's usually older women and it happens, you know, just across my, my practice, you know, probably a few times a year. And then I'll have patients, you know, taking pain medicine a year later. That's usually younger men. <laughs> you know, I think we're just not as tough, honestly. But, um, you know, that probably happens once every year, two years. That's, but almost everyone falls into that, you know, month to a few months. But patients get back pretty good. Um, the, the chronic pain, it does, it does happen. And, you know, I'll, I'll usually send them to a pain specialist. It sounds... Some people think I'm a quack, but, you know, you try and learn from your patients. Uh, I'll have patients try acupuncture. Mm -hmm. um, and I learned that from a patient. I had this one patient years ago, and I used to dread her coming in because I felt so bad for her. It was two, three years later, and it was still hurting her. And I was sending her to neurosurgeons and pain specialists and another pain. And one day she comes in, and she's got a box of candy from, like, what's going on? And she, I said, she's no pain. I'm like, why? She goes, I got acupuncture. That's all I needed. I sent, I mean, I, I was having trouble with my back years ago. It didn't help me, but I tried acupuncture. I mean, I believe it. It's, I have a whole box of, you know, can't hurt may help things. And I think acupuncture is definitely one of them. So when I've had these patients, like you're saying that are worried about neuropathy, sometimes that's been very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of things that can be done, but it, at least, in my experience, it's been it's been pretty unusual. Um, if a patient has recurrence, I do get the question of, can they have more than one surgery? Is that possible? Short answer is yes, but again, uh, the reason you need a team is because the way you treat that recurrence is going to be completely individualized. So I will routinely operate for a recurrence within the incision. So mesothelioma loves to grow out of incisions more than most cancers that I'm aware of. So as a matter of fact, that's like a chess game. If, if you do a biopsy, ideally you'll try and put the biopsy incision in line with the future chest incision for a resection so that you can excise it because you can sort of eliminate that chance of the of the recurrence but these the cancer can recur in incisions 
if that happens and it's nowhere else, um, what we'll do is we'll excise it. So we'll take them to the operating room, excise it. I usually mark it with clips so that the radiation oncologist can see it. And that's one of the in indications that, at least in our practice, that we've had for additional radiation will then radiate that area. Um, in fact, the patient from the other week, she had her, her cancer was growing out of her biopsy incision and um, it was in a different site. So I excised that and marked it with clips. And so she'll actually end up, so she's, they're, they're from, I think, North Carolina, they're going to stick around, but they'll probably, and that's a pretty short treatment. It was only three or five treatments, depending on who the radiation is. So they'll stick around probably a couple, an extra week for that. Um, but those are, that's one of the roles. As far as going in to take out a big recurrence in the chest cavity, I have done that. It's been a highly, highly selected, uh, it, but it's not like, it's not like a, a number of cancers where you'll just go back and yet. So the short answer is yes, you can. Uh, there's some situations where I think it's, it's perfectly appropriate and probably, you know, uh, the correct thing to do and without question, you know, is going to be helpful, like, like that local recurrence that you excise. But if it's a more diffuse recurrence inside the chest, then I think you're going to start thinking about, um, is it the same subtype of the cancer? Um, when was the last time they got systemic therapy? You start, you know, did, was this just in my career, one of the things that some patients have had surgery, they've had the recurrence. And just during the period of time that we bought them a remission, a new treatment has come out. Right. And so, and that's, I don't, I don't use that as a, as a point to advocate surgery, but that is definitely one of the benefits that I've seen patients. So the immunotherapies, you know, being shown effective for a lot of these cancers that was not around when some patients that I operated on before have recurred. So that might be something if they have a recurrence, we would consider that using radiation in a selected way is something that we become more aggressive with. And it just, I had a roommate in college used to drive me nuts. He's a super smart guy and I'd ask him questions and he could just never, he'd go, well, it depends. You know, always need a more from it. And that's, that's the way, that's the way. So can you do surgery? Yes. Is it the right thing to do? It depends. For the recurrence in the incision, I'd say almost always yes, if that's the only site. If it's inside the chest cavity, that's, that's going to be a more, a more involved examination and discussion. Thank you. That was a, a very good answer um, for something that I get asked quite a bit. So oh, good. I, hopefully that will help patients understand that. Oh, good. Um, <clears throat> when you have somebody who does have a lymph node that maybe uh, lit up on a PET scan or um, on an initial, you know, an initial diagnosis, can they become surgical candidates with the use of um, maybe upfront chemotherapy or something like that? Yeah, it depends. It depends on the protocol. And again, I got to tell you, so years ago, we, we did, um, when I was at Penn, we did, we did a trial and one of the most uh, prognostic features of the cancer was if the lymph nodes were involved or not. And that was with a different set of chemotherapies. And that was when we were doing this 
light-based cancer treatment, photodynamic therapy. When I went to Maryland, we switched to, and I'm personally a, a pretty strong believer in trying to do something intraoperatively. Like I said, you know, you scrape the paint off the walls and there's still cells behind. So I can remove all the detectable cancer, but when the chest is open, I know there's invisible microscopic disease still remaining. That's kind of your last opportunity to kind of face the, the beast directly, <laughs> you know? So I, I'm sort of a firm believer in trying to do something intraoperatively. We started doing this intraoperative treatment with, it's usually used as an antiseptic, betadine. It's usually used as a surgeon, but turns out it has a pretty significant anti-cancer effect. And we do that with heated water and uh, which also kills lysis free floating cells and so forth. So, so when you do that, I'm sorry, you're washing mm. the inside with that? Yeah, so I, I didn't come up with that. When when we went to Maryland, we had planned on sticking with the photodynamic therapy because we actually had gotten pretty pretty good results doing that, as good as anything that had been published. Um, but then when we got down there through logistical things, we couldn't we didn't have access to the system that you need to do that. And like I said, I wanted to do this. A, a friend of mine in the UK had published some stuff doing this with the betadine. And we had done that on a few patients at when I was at Penn who had not been candidates for the photodynamic therapy for a number of reasons. And so, um, you know, we switched to that. It, it's way, way simpler than the photodynamic therapy. And I had planned to go back to photodynamic, but when we looked at our results, which we're actually writing up now, you know, our last 50 patients, the results are actually better than we got with the photodynamic therapy. So, um, so I, I stuck with that. So that's something that, you know, we'll, we'll do intraoperatively. Lights went out again. Uh, <laughs> sorry, let me just one more time. Drive me to distraction. Um, that's something that we'll do intraoperatively to try and, you know, treat the residual cancer and then they'll get the additional treatments postoperatively. I digress though. We got onto the intraoperative treatment. You, there was something else you had asked me. I apologize. Oh, that's okay. I was just wondering if you have somebody that maybe has um, questionable disease outside of the oh, cavity, oh, the if they nodes. can I'm become sorry. surgical candidates. Right. The, the lymph nodes we were talking about. Yes. So the point of that, how I got there, I apologize, was um, in this series, the lymph nodes were not statistically significant in prognosis. So there, we have not used the lymph nodes as an exclusion criteria. So if somebody has lymph nodes involved, again, I look at the whole, we have to look at the whole thing. And I never make these decisions unilaterally. Every patient is presented to the whole group and we have a discussion. I don't just go, oh yeah, let's go to the operating room. I mean, I, we discuss everyone at length. We go, we go through everything and everyone has to say, yeah, this makes sense. Um, but the lymph nodes, unless they're on the opposite side of the chest cavity or out of the chest cavity, like in the, you know, up in the neck or something like that, that would be an exclusion criteria. Um, it's, a crazy cancer. So I would never say never. So if you have someone who's not a surgical candidate now because of a cancer reason, I'll give you a good example is 
I've had several patients and they actually turned out to be fairly long-term survivors who present one of my patients who one of my favorite patients ever and he lived I think 10 years after his surgery um, presented with metastases into his abdomen so we you know and I have as for instance tomorrow I have a laparoscopy scheduled if there's any suspicion and even sometimes if there isn't we'll take a look in the abdomen because again that's a place that mesothelioma can not only start but it can spread and you want to be as convinced as you possibly can that's confined to the one chest cavity but i've had two patients i can think of off the top of my head both who um survived for actually three um where it was in the belly. So we treated them up front with chemotherapy. And this is before the immunotherapy. So we treated them with chemotherapy. We repeated the laparoscopy, looked in the abdomen. I wash it out, do random biopsies, and there was no evidence of disease. So we offered them surgery and they actually did quite well. Whereas if you were just sort of algorithmic about it, you go, well, that's it. You know, you'll never have surgery. So really try and keep an open mind about this. I've also had patients with bilateral disease, same sort of thing where um, if the lymph nodes are not involved, which I would think at least in lung cancer, we tend to think if you if you got cancers on both sides, if the lymph nodes in the middle are not involved, it's more often than not, um, more often than not, it's a, uh, uh, you know, this guy started and this guy started, they don't know anything about each other, which is a totally different cancer situation than if this guy spread to that one. Right. If that happens, usually the lymph nodes are involved. So we'll look at a patient with bilateral disease. If they're a young, healthy, fit person and they want to be aggressive, I'll consider doing the two sides sequentially. But again, there's a lot of discussion, a lot of thought that that goes into that. We just saw maybe six months ago, sort of the nth degree example of that. We saw a patient who has peritoneal disease and bilateral disease. And he had some sort of, you know, high-tech analysis of all these different cancers, three synchronous primary mesotheliomas. This is a mesothelioma, that's a mesothelioma, and that's a mesothelioma, all different as proven molecularly. So molecular none of analysis. them were related. None. It was not metastatic disease is what you're right. saying. Right. Yeah. And so normally you go, oh, my God, he's got mesothelioma in three body cavities. Why would you ever operate on that? And I didn't offer him surgery, but I told him, I mean, he's doing remarkably well. And in fact, he was scheduled for surgery. And I said, that's another example. I said, personally, I would not, I mean, we're not going to make you better than you are right now. I think right. we should, you know, my God, you just got back from Disney World with your kids. You rode Space Mountain. How, how are we going to improve on that right now? So, you know, I think we should keep a close eye on you. And that's what that's what we're doing. But if he just had one side that picked up, I would probably certainly consider offering someone like that. He's a young guy, you know, aggressive treatment. So it's totally different. But the lymph nodes in and of themselves are not, at least in our hands, an exclusion criterion. I tend to, all things being equal with an epithelioid mesothelioma, I'll do the surgery up front and the chemotherapy afterwards or the immunotherapy afterwards. I know that's also, again, it's not like lung cancer, breast cancer. It's not algorithmic. It's, it's not standardized. I think there's more of a trend to that. A lot of people will do the, you know, do the treatments up front. Um, but 
I must say that I've had, if someone wants to be aggressive, you know, if they have a systemic therapy and they get sick from it, they can go from being, or they have kidney damage, or they go from being a safe candidate to an unsafe candidate. candidate. And the vast majority of the time, unlike some tricky lung cancer cases will do, or, or a thymic cancer, something like that, even if they have a great response, it doesn't change the operation that you do. Right. You know, you can have a good response with the chemotherapy and go from having to take someone's entire lung out to being able to save half of it. Mesothelioma really doesn't change the operation. So there's not that same kind of impetus to try and, quote, downstage it, which is what we say. And then the other thing is that some patients I've seen will get chemotherapy. And a fair number of my patients I see have already been treated and have progressed through it. And like I said, you always keep an open mind. but some patients will go from, they may tolerate the chemotherapy great, even continue working through it, but the cancer progresses and they'll go from something you can take out to something now you can't take out. So my bias is if I've had the discussion with them and they want to be aggressive, personally, we'll, our, our group will, for an epithelioid at least, we'll, we'll try and offer the surgery up front and then the systemic therapy afterwards. I think that one of the biggest takeaways from this um, whole entire episode is that, you know, really getting that opinion from an expert um, can make all of the difference because you do have um, the bandwidth of of having those tumor boards and presenting these patients and and making the best decisions because it is such um, individualized care for each person depending on uh, what they look like, what what their disease looks like, um, as well as their their status um, in in their life. Um, so yeah, my last question is: um, this is also something that I get asked quite frequently. Is there screening that can be or should be done for someone who may be considered high risk for mesothelioma? Oh, <laughs> I wish there. <laughs> so. <laughs> One of the, yeah, I mean, and I, so I'll share a piece of exciting news with you in a second. Um, uh, there isn't a standardized anything for that. Um, so who's at high risk? Well, obviously, uh, people with significant asbestos exposure, bearing in mind that something only like 10% of asbestos miners get mesothelioma. The flip side is, so it's like smoking, right? the the overwhelming majority of people with lung cancer are smokers, but the overwhelming majority of smokers don't have lung cancer. It's the same thing with it's the same thing with asbestos, and that's the number one risk factor. So that that group of of patients who have had a lot of asbestos exposure should definitely be getting screened. We have this thing here that um, our department chair, Dr. Kreiner, started called the Temple Healthy Chest Initiative, where it's part of um, low-dose lung cancer screening, but there's all sorts of artificial intelligence that also looks for pleural disease, wow, heart disease, um, other masses in the chest. So it screens for a lot of things. Personally, if I know someone that's high risk, and I'll tell you who defines that group for me, and this is a a really tragic scenario that I've encountered so many times now, it's it's often two sisters who wash dad's clothes 
and one has mesothelioma and the other doesn't. And she's like, what do I do? I'll scan, I'll get a CAT scan, just a regular low dose CAT scan once a year for those patients, or if there's something suspicious more frequently. Um, I think an even better question is, you know, what do you do for those people? Right. And who are literally living their lives waiting for the other shoe to drop. And so we just, about an hour and a half before this, before this call, um, we just got notified that we got a, um, an NCI grant for preventive treatment Exciting. for high-risk patients. Yeah, so working with Dr. Joe Testa, the guy who discovered the BAP1 gene, yes. um, using his model, and uh, I can't spill the beans yet, but it's, it's literally, it's just a, it, a, a vegetable-derived compound that you could take every day you know, I'm hoping we'll see what happens. I'll have an update for you probably in a year or two, what's going on with that. But, um, you know, Dr. Testa has developed this mouse model of asbestos-induced mesothelioma. And we're going to, you know, give half the mice the sub. The, the gist of the grant is we're going to give half the mice the supplement, which you could just take every day. I'll tell you this. Um based on the stuff that we did at University of Maryland, this basic science research, um, I buy it off Amazon, I take it myself. <laughs> it's like, it's definitely my can't hurt may help file. So we'll see if it makes a difference uh, for mesothelioma, but that's something, you know, I think if you had a high risk group of patients, not only should we be screening them, but if there was something you could be taking to try and prevent mesothelioma, what a, you know, what a, what a great contribution. I'd love to have you know, uh, have that be as part of a legacy. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on this with me today. I think that I've learned a lot. I'm sure that our patients have learned an immense oh, amount. Um, and your explanation, your artistic abilities were... <laughs> You're too kind and I do mean We're very kind. helpful. So <laughs> okay. thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity.